0: Hi, I'm Scott McDonald, you might remember me as Lieutenant Rollins on Star Trek Voyager, as Goranagar on Star Trek Deep Space Nine, and as the evil Zindi Reptile Commander Dolum on Star Trek Enterprise. And now you are watching me on Trek Untold.
1: to Trek Untold, Star Trek podcast that goes beyond the stars. I'm your host, Matthew Kaplowitz. And welcome back to part two of my conversation with Scott McDonald. Last week, we went over the first half of his time on Star Trek, which included him being the first alien to come through the wormhole on Deep Space Nine as Tusk, and his time spent as a Romulan. This week, we get to hear some behind-the-scenes stories of his time on the pilot episode of Voyager, where he got to wear a Starfleet uniform and also, for once, not wear alien makeup. Scott was also there before Kate Mulgrew came on board, so we get the real inside scoop on the actress who was originally meant to be Captain Janeway, who didn't quite make it through her first week. From there, it's on to his time as a Jim Hadar named Garanagar in the fourth season DS9 episode, Hippocratic Oath. And finally, we learn what it was like being a reptilian Zindi from when he played Commander Dolum for many, many episodes in season three of Enterprise. We'll also spend some more time today talking about his other roles, including one that he is very, very well known for, and that's the cult classic Christmas horror movie, Jack Frost. So really, this is the perfect time of year to have this chat. Just like I said last week, Scott's interview was a masterclass in acting technique and theory. So any up-and-coming actors should really pay attention here and pick up some great tips on how to build a character and how to portray them on stage and screen. Scott was definitely one of my favorite interviews in 2022, and I hope you're enjoying his time as much as I did. So make sure to let me know on social media if you like this one too. But I shouldn't get too far ahead of myself until you actually finish this whole episode. So get ready for part two of my epic career-spanning interview with Scott McDonald. But before we begin this week's episode, I want to remind you to follow Trek Untold on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at trekuntold, all one word. You can get show updates, check out some fun memes, and let me know what you think about what's going on with the current events in the Star Trek universe. You can also support this show directly on Patreon at patreon.com slash trekuntold, where you can support this show for as little as $2 a month. At higher tiers, you can listen to the shows before they come out, know about my guests well in advance, and even have a chance to ask them questions. Get transcripts of these episodes to make sure you get all the info and more benefits coming soon, including watch parties and live streams. But that's all dependent on more fans like you coming over and letting me know you want to be a part of events like that. If you want some Trek Untold merchandise, check out our store for gear and apparel, including shirts, hats, stickers, water bottles, notebooks, and a whole lot more. New designs will be added throughout the year, so it's always worth taking a peek. Trek Untold also has an Amazon shop where you can peruse everything Star Trek, sci-fi, and geeky on Amazon in one convenient location. If you're looking for a gift for the Trekkie in your life, or maybe you want to see some of my favorite non-Star Trek things that you can get for yourself, check out the link for my Amazon shop in the show notes on the audio version and in the description below this video on YouTube. If you're listening to us on iTunes or any other audio platforms that allow for ratings and reviews, please leave us a five-star rating and a positive review to help out this show. If you're watching it on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe to us at youtube.com, at Trek Untold, and give the video a thumbs up and a comment. All of these things help more people find this show and to continue growing and bringing you awesome guests each and every week. Now, without further ado, let's beam in this week's guest. Computer, access interview file. And welcome back to Trek Untold. And well, welcome back to part two of our chat with Scott McDonald. Uh, you know, Scott, I think you're like the first guest I've actually had where, like, mid-interview, I was I had to stop the interview and just be like, "Let's keep this going" because there's so much. You gave me such gold in that first episode, so I'm very excited to see what you got from you in this one.
0: Yeah, well, I have I, I have enough characters that sometimes we run over. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, it's totally worth it. I mean, your stories have been awesome, and hearing all the different things you had to say about how you created your characters and how you performed, uh, they are really astonishing things to hear. So. Uh, I'm, I'm excited to get back into the Trek, but I want to talk about a few things first uh, that we didn't get to last time either. Just a few of the roles on your resume. And uh, there's one that's really kind of fun here, uh, and it's kind of different. Uh, I want to talk about Jack Frost, which is the Christmas horror movie. You did the voice of the killer snowman. And I mean, this movie did so well, it got itself a sequel. Uh, it's a bizarre, crazy film. So I, I got to just take this from the beginning here. When you first read the script, what came into your mind?
0: Well. It's kind of a long story, Jack Frost. It started as a regular, well-funded, major horror movie from uh, back when Disney broke off and they did a kind of, they broke off and they had a, they had a Buena Vista. Yeah. And that was different. It was, technically, it wasn't a Disney film. So you could do... Adventurous and weird and strange stuff, and yeah, it had. I think they different... were even
1: the distributors of uh, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. In fact, so they were doing yeah, some real. It, had, different it things. had
0: big funding. It had a major director attached to it. It was an incredibly exciting job to get. The story that I was told when I booked the job was that the special effects would be a lot like, and this is back in ninety seven, ninety six. So. You know, special effects have come a long way since then, but uh they referenced the hollow man yeah. and that kind of special effects for Jack and his ability to transform uh basically, you know, I mean, just for those who don't know who are listening, it's the story of a condemned murderer psycho killer who on his way to the gas chamber hit the vehicle smashes into a government chemical truck and his <laughs> body is able to bond with water and he survives and goes back in the form of a snowman to the town snowmanton <laughs> to wreak havoc uh never get over that name <laughs> yeah and uh The original script was serious. It was a, it was, it was going to be a, a real Halloween type slaughter fest. And, and, uh, we were pretty excited when I booked it. I was early in my career. I thought, oh, this is going to be exciting. I'm going to be in a big movie. Uh, and then, uh, we got word that the financing completely fell through that it wasn't going to be a big movie. It wasn't going to happen that way. Michael Cooney, the director, contacted me and said, this is what happened. The money's completely different. We don't know if you still want to do it. We're all pretty disappointed. The bottom fell out, but we still want to shoot this movie independently. But we have to do this massive pivot. We have to completely change it. We're gonna make it schlocky. We're going to make it kind of funny. We're going to send up other slasher flicks. We're going to go for some comedy in it if we can. Uh, I remember uh, Jeremy, one of the producers, said something about, do you remember the beach blanket bingo movies with Frankie Avalon? And there's going to be a little bit of an element of that kind of strange chaos to this movie. And it was hard for me to grasp how they were going to pull that off, but I was still game to do it. And, uh, I remember I had auditioned with the scene when Jack is captured by the sheriff in human form. And I didn't only voice it. Jack is in it. I, I play Jack Frost in, in the beginning before he becomes the snowman. And then I vo- subsequently voiced the stuff after. And I did some of the stuff with Jack, the snowman, but, uh, A lot of it is this great, big, huge snowman that they had made. So that was, yeah, that was a very unique and strange job because of that pivot and because of that quest for uh, schlocky, hilarious, over-the-top, goofy, send-up fun. And uh, it was also really unique because it was released straight to video intentionally that wasn't the it wasn't that was sort of a that would cast a pall on a movie when that happened to it back then but these guys they went for that as a as a kind of a ploy uh, a sales ploy and it was i didn't find any of this stuff out until much later it was the number one direct-to-video movie for several years in a row you know just huge grosses in that regard solely because, and you know because there was no theatrical release none at all there was no theatrical release of this movie anywhere so audiences were never big hmm. it was always people watching it in their houses and that's a movie that you got to be with the right people to enjoy that movie because some people want it to be serious some people don't get it some people And I watched it several times with groups of people where there was always a couple people that were like, "Eh, I don't really know about that movie. But way forward in the future, after it came out and it it did fairly well. uh, And I was at a screening of a movie down at the Egyptian theater in Hollywood. And I had done. Let me see if I can remember how this all went. My phone rang one morning and it it was a woman who said she was calling from Criterion Pictures and they wanted to do an interview with me about Jack Frost. Now, usually around the holidays, some of my friends start practical joking me and gagging me and teasing me about being in this holiday movie. I thought it was a practical joke. And I, you know, argued with her about it for a while and said, who puts you up to this? And okay, you know, ha ha ha, very funny and all these kinds of things. And then She was baffled, and she finally said, I'm serious about this. Um, We want to do an interview for the 20th anniversary DVD, new Blu-ray release of Jack Frost. Oh, okay, but we got to do it quick. We'll come to your house. and So they were in my house a day and a half later, and I did a big interview about it. And uh, I will confess, I had not seen the movie in a really long time. I had a, um, a VHS of it, the the one with that great lenticular cover. Uh, I remember that very well. Anyway, they uh, I did that full interview and the Blu-ray was going to come out and it was going to come out around Christmas. They were trying to beat the holiday with it. And then I was standing down at the Egyptian theater for a screening of a movie with my wife. And, uh, they were loading eight by 10 photos in the marquee of that theater. And I wasn't paying any attention to it. We were just waiting to get in. And my wife elbowed me and said, isn't that your movie? And sure enough, they were loading pictures of Jack Frost into the marquee at the theater at the Egyptian theater down in Hollywood. So we went in and found, we found our seats and I said, this is Torturing me. I got to go out and find out what's going on out there. So I went out and I said to her, What's going on? And she said, Oh, oh, do you know this movie? And I said, Yeah, I know this movie. And she said, Well, we're so excited because there's a 20th anniversary Blu ray coming out and they did an interview with the director and the actor in it. And they're going to be on the new Blu ray and in the director's interview he mentioned that he had a 35 millimeter print of the movie and it had never been screened anywhere so we're gonna screen it it's gonna be the first ever full theatrical screening of jack frost <laughs> and and uh i said well you know she said well did you know and i said that it never got released into theaters ever yes did you know and i kept answering all her questions she said boy you know a lot about this movie and i said well i'm jack frost <laughs> she said what and I said, I'm Jack Frost. I'm Scott McDonald. I am I played Jack Frost. I'm one of the stars of that movie. And, and I voiced Jack Frost too. And she gets on her phone and uh, Vinegar Syndrome is sponsoring the whole thing. And then my cell phone starts to blow up and they're saying, will you come? Will you do the talk back after? We can't pay anything, but will you come and will you do it? And, uh, and I said, of course I will. That, that, that would be really great. Um, what do you want? What do you want? I said, give me, give me eight seats right in the middle of the theater. Tape them off for me and I'll bring eight people. So I went to that thing and I'll be honest with you. I thought this is going to be fun. There's going to be 70, 80 people. Uh, It's the first time I will ever see this movie with a group of people. And the first time anyone else will have either. And uh the place was almost sold out. There was over 300 people in there. It was raucous. It was hilarious. They were all in on the joke. They all understood the movie. Uh, and I was, got to admit, I had a little dread going in because I was thinking, you know, what if it's like one of these 50-50 mixes of people who are half like it and half kind of don't get it? It wasn't. It was wall to wall, uproarious laughter. I took my two sons, who had never seen the movie, miraculously, uh, up to that time. So the first time they ever saw it was on the big screen, and they were just laughing uproariously at all of the intentionally silly bits that are in the movie. Uh, so it was quite an, it was, it turned out uniquely to be one of the most extraordinary. Events of my career. I never expected it to be that awesome. It was just wall to wall fun. Everybody in there understood the dynamic and the vibe of that movie. So they were just uproariously laughing. So it was, it was great fun. And I now go do occasionally or right around the holidays, I go do horror conventions. I get invited, you know, just for the holidays. I don't know, you know, I don't go in the summer, but right around the holidays, uh, I go do the, The holiday themed horror slasher movies, many of which are these kind of schlocky, hilarious, over the top B movie uh, type of films. And uh, it it has a massive cult following. I'm amazed to this day that it does.
1: I mean, I know about it because I used to read this website called imockery.com and he would do sometimes horror movie reviews. And that's how I first heard about it. And I saw these gifts from it that he put up there. And it's like, and, and then of course he did the sequel later on and it's just like, what's going on in this movie. This is crazy. But like, yeah, it's become a massive cult classic. And I'm curious to know, uh, why do you think this movie has become so much more popular today than it was when it first came out? Like, why does it have this massive
0: following? I don't know. I honestly don't know. There's just a, there's just a, there's just a faction of fans that like that. They, they get it. they, they understood what, what, what Michael and Jeremy did. Michael and Jeremy just said, we got to, we got to change everything because we lost our financing. When they saw the snowman, they thought, Oh, what are we going to do? <laughs> I mean, it was, it was big. It was 13 feet high or something like that. And, uh, they had spent quite a bit of their budget on it. And, uh, uh, they were kind of stunned by it. And, but they, to their credit, they really did pivot on the fly and made it work pretty well. And, uh, you know, they got the act, they got the performances out of the actors. Uh, some of, you know, some of them, they, they were not happy with the people who they'd hired, but I don't know. It, it, it just has this unique cult following and your guess is as good as mine. I honestly don't know. I I I'm sincere when I say I'm completely surprised because this year's the 25th anniversary of it. And I am going to go do a, uh, another horror convention right around the holidays over here in Pasadena uh this year. I think it's December 2nd and uh, two, three, four, I think. Uh, and, but I, like I say, I'm really surprised by that fan following, but it's legitimate. It's real. And they just did a brand new blue Blu-ray DVD release of Jack Frost one and Jack Frost two, uh, from, I think MVD video or something like that but uh there's another one coming out and i did during covid i did an interview with a guy for a podcast about it and they uh they took that interview and they put it on the uh, dvd extras so that it's in there uh with a lot of the stories of shooting the thing and stuff like that so yeah it's a it's interesting that you call that one up because it's a it i am baffled (laughs) i don't I'm really surprised by it. It's a pleasant surprise because that movie is really goofy. But <laughs> yeah. uh, but they they accomplished what they wanted to with it uh, after some crushing disappointment from the studio as far as financing went.
1: Yeah, I think horror fans in general are a very loyal group of movie watchers. And, you know, as much as you know, there there's a contingent of fans that want to watch the gore fest, I want to see the blood and guts. Most of them still tend to like the comedy, the dark comedy within the blood and guts, and I feel like Jack Frost is like that kind of perfect combination of silly wackiness, but also you still have your slasher good times in it.
0: Oh, they went, uh, they yeah. went crazy with they the did. absurdity and the and the and the silly stuff. And when we were doing the voiceover after the movie was in the can and we were doing the voiceover, we had so much fun. We just making up lines, coming up with silly lines the uh one of my favorites is they hit they throw they they blow up jack and he and he and he's because he's a snowman his pieces are all in different places all over his body and he's hobbling away and he says look ma i'm a picasso you know i just it, it it's 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 idiocy but uh intentionally so and really fun
1: Despite you really only being on screen in the first like five minutes or maybe I don't even know if it's 10 minutes, but despite being on the you know, barely in, on screen in that film, do you feel like this is the role that people recognize you the most from?
0: Jack Frost? Yeah. Oh, no. But no, no, no.
1: Okay. <laughs> what would you say is that role then if it's not Jack Frost? Because You've done a lot of stuff. So what do you think people remember you the best for that? They if you, they see you at a convention they see in the story, or do they come up to you and say, hey, you're that dude from?
0: Well, I, I, I have. The blessing and the curse of some real anonymity. Um, the reason I got to do a lot of Star Treks was because you couldn't tell it was me. Yeah. I did Tosk and then I immediately did Nevek. Uh, then I was Rollins. Uh, then I was Goranagar, a Jim Hadar. Uh, then I was a Klingon. Uh, then I was Commander Dolem. So that latex, I don't have that instant face recognition at those sci-fi conventions that a lot of guys have. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you, and when I'm sitting at that convention table, many, many, many people come up and they look down at all those eight by 10 pictures that are there to be signed. And they say, wait, this is you. And this is you. And this is you. And this is you. That conversation happens to me a lot. Uh, A lot of times people come up with the program and say, it took me a long time to find you. I didn't know what you looked like. (laughs) Uh, So. I don't really know that I have that facial recognition. Um, I did have a weird one happen one time, probably 1998. I was driving up i five from LA to Washington state and pulled off in the middle of the night at like an AM PM or something. And I was just picking up some, you know, coffee and some stuff because I was driving through the night and, uh, the guy behind the cash register, I got up and I was paying for my stuff. And the guy said, are you subcommander Nevek? <laughs> Out in the middle of nowhere in Oregon, I was taken aback. You know, I said, good pull. Wow. You know, way <laughs> to go. Congratulations. Yes, I am. So, you know, that was an interesting experience. but uh i don't i don't know jarhead i was the drill instructor in the movie jarhead which was a big a-list movie and a pretty high profile thing so for a you little to while by Jake there,
1: Gyllenhaal for a bit
0: yeah yeah uh, and so for a little while i was pretty recognizable from that when that movie was hot for a while uh, anonymity is the name of my game it really is it's it's it, it it's a blessing and a curse in some ways but uh I got to do a lot of Star Treks because you because they didn't like to repeat faces if they could help it yeah. a lot of the time. They did hire people over and over and over. But a lot of times it was because of the makeup that they did.
1: Well, I want to talk about something else that you did have your face on. Uh, and this is kind of going in that sort of similar spooky vibe, but a little bit more serious, oh, much more serious, really, because I'd like to ask you about Carnival. Uh, oh. You played uh, Burley for more than half the episodes in that show's run. Uh, yeah. I will admit that I have not watched the entire series yet, but I've talked to some folks who are on the show. In fact, John Fleck was on this podcast and he was in Carnival and, uh, great, great guest. And, uh, it seems like a really awesome show. I got to tell you, like it's one of those kinds of shows I think I do want to try and get myself into, but, uh, I'd love to hear a little about your time on that show and uh, any memories that stand out. Cause it's quite a,
0: I, I, quite an interesting. I really, I really enjoyed working on Carnival a lot. Uh, great company of people, all really great. Uh, I, I think I, I think I, I think I'm in maybe the fourth or fifth one Burley gets introduced and, uh, and they kept having me come back here and there, uh, recurring character, uh, nothing fancy. And then there's a couple episodes in the second season where they gave me more to do, Mm -hmm. but it was a really great job because I was coming off of commander Dolem which was Star Trek Enterprise, eight episodes as the Zindi Reptile Commander. A lot of latex, a lot of hours, a lot of sweat and struggle inside that suit. So I just absolutely love going to that Carnival set. And I just, you know, I grew my Fu Manchu in for it. And uh just they would I would get in that I'd be in makeup five minutes <laughs> and then I'd be out. You know, they just throw a little dirt on my face and that would be that i just I just so loved it uh it was just a lot easier than how hard I had to work as Commander Dolem just as far as the hours and the effort and the struggle inside that latex went so that's the contrast for me of those two things. I came off of one and right into the other so but just just a great experience all the way around and and I was as disappointed as everybody else that it didn't get its third season. I wish they would have done the third season. It had a, it had a really big following. It was really popular, but it was right before all of those kinds of shows, those HBO series and everything really exploded. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it didn't, uh, it wasn't as financially viable, I suppose, in the eyes of HBO back in those days as because the Sopranos came right after and exploded so all of a sudden you know now that's all you see is showtime shows and netflix shows and hbo shows and you know game of thrones and all of that stuff uh so we were we 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 predated the popularity of that genre just a little bit unfortunately
1: it definitely is a show that feels like it's ahead of its time i mean i did a little bit of reading about what happens in the show and what the plot is and it would totally fit in today so yeah it is unfortunate oh, you it's it's, to it it's a
0: really it's a really unique and cool piece of writing good versus evil you know and uh clancy brown is you know a really good actor and uh it's it's just a really it was a really good company of people uh they they were terrific to work with and a lot of well, I see directors' names now on things that think, oh, I worked with him on Carnival. So there were a lot of burgeoning, really good film directors uh, that worked on that show, too, that shot him. So uh, that was a great gig. Uh, I I can't remember. Somebody told me, I think I'm in 15 or 27 or something like that.
1: Yeah, I think it's like, I think I saw on INDB, it might have been 14, but it's basically more than half the show's run. So you're in there for a lot of it. Yeah. All right, well, Scott, let's beam back into our Star Trek discussion because we basically left off at the halfway mark with your roles and we gotta jump back in right now. So we yep. already met Tosk, we already met Navek, uh who didn't quite make it out alive of his episode, unfortunately. Uh, but you did return chronologically to be in the first episode of Voyager. You're yes. in the very first one, the very first pilot episode, and you're the officer named Rollins. That's right. So were you auditioning for another role on Voyager and they just gave you this one? Like were you going for someone else that might have been higher up in the food chain?
0: No. They auditioned me for Rollins, and uh, I was told, when they asked me to audition for it, that he was going to be like O'Brien oh,
1: okay.
0: in The Next Generation. He was going to be a recurring character. You were going to see him around a lot, and uh, and he has a lot to do. Uh, he runs the bridge when they all beam down in that pilot episode. Rollins is running the ship, and uh, so... I feel my personal feeling is it didn't make any sense that you never saw him again. It doesn't for a show that's so good. Uh, the Star Trek canon at, you know, covering all their, all, you know, dotting all their eyes and crossing all their T's and everything. It made no sense that Rollins was no longer around. He was this in integral part of the bridge. And then he didn't again appear, but, It wasn't a situation where you could say, well, they just switched him out at the next port or something. It couldn't happen because they'd been blown out into the Delta Quadrant. So they, you know, so it was disappointing to not have any resolution of my character. And there was quite a fan reaction to that. I would go to sci-fi conventions and there were, there was a group of ladies. I think they were from Texas and they had, uh, bring back Rollins buttons that they would wear on their, on their chests. And uh, people would come up to me and say, how come you didn't, what happened to Rollins? Rollins is, you know, one guy told me, and I don't have any idea whether any of this stuff is true or not. The Trek fans know it better than I do. But uh, he said that I'm the only non-series regular with full command of a starship on any of the series. Hmm. When Rollins is up on that bridge alone, running it and talking to them when they're, when they all beam down to the planet. But yeah, that was supposed to be a lot more, but it turned into an incredibly long job because that pilot took forever to shoot. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm in the only footage of Jean Bia Beaujeu as Captain Janeway. We filmed with her for, I don't remember, five or six days mm-hmm. or something. I and was curious she- about
1: that. I was wondering if you if you actually had a cross path with her. Cause, uh, I don't think we well, talked about her too I'd much in the seen,
0: show. I had scenes with her. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, then she quit. Mm.
1: I mean, do you think she just wasn't really fitting in for the material or what do you think was ultimately the cause for her departure?
0: Yeah, she was incredibly uncomfortable.
1: Mm. I
0: don't think I'm telling tales out of school to say that. She was uncomfortable. She didn't understand the Star Trek universe. She didn't get it. She didn't get what was going on. Uh, she was. Uh, she wasn't captain like. Uh, she didn't take charge. She didn't command the bridge uh she felt insecure in the role and it came through a little bit in her performance i think but you know they were working with her and trying to get her and you know i mean she's an incredible actress yeah it just wasn't a great fit and uh i think you need to have a little bit of a knowledge of what's going on in the star trek universe uh just for the buy in if nothing else you know but uh i remember she I was just up running my little section up there. Uh, and she came over to me on in between takes and she said, What is Bajoran? <sighs> and I said, Oh, Bajoran. That's a, that's a race of people. That's a planet, the planet Bajor. She didn't say anything and she looked a little confused. And I said, I don't know, think of it like uh, if the Federation is the United States of America, then Bajor is Canada. (laughs) They're both free and independent, and they both think they're better than the other (laughs) one, But they're allies.
1: I like that comparison.
0: And she went, huh. Looked at me really funny and turned on her heel and walked away. And when you're a guest star it's dangerous to tell somebody something. And I just was trying to help her. I, you know, and then she went over and she talked to Jerry Taylor, the executive producer, and they were whispering and talking and looking at me and whispering and talking and looking at me. And I thought, am I going to get in trouble for this? You know, maybe I should have just said, 'I I don't know what to tell you. Jerry Taylor came up and she said, what did you say to her? And I said, she asked me, she didn't know how to pronounce Bajoran. She didn't know what a Bajoran was. It's in the script today. I told her it's the planet Bajor, the Bajoran people. And then I did my analogy thing, told her about, I told her it's kind of like this. And she sort of smiled at me and tilted her head and said, that's pretty good. And then she walked back over and she told her da, 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 da. And then Jean-Biub came over and talked to me again and said, so you weren't, teasing me. And I said I, I was trying to help you. I would never I would never tease you. I would only assist you. I'm a comrade in arms here. We're all just actors trying to So it, it was it was odd. Mm. And uncomfortable for me because I didn't I did not like she came to me a couple more times and after that I was really uncomfortable. Uh uh And she would just go sit over in the corner like this, leaning up against the set. And so when I heard she's gone, I really wasn't super surprised. Mm. Um, then we waited. I don't remember anymore. I used to know we waited maybe 10 days and they called us all back and we all put our stuff on and we all went back. And, uh, we were all waiting in there that day and wondering who they had hired and no one showed up. Hmm. So there was some faint, some wrinkle, something that didn't happen. I don't know. Someone said they thought Joanna Cassidy was going to be the captain that day, I remember. And I said, how would we know? And then a couple days later, Kate Mulgrew came in and she just rocked it. She hmm put her hands on her hips and barked orders and you could just feel the tension leave the room uh, it was she was really good I mean she just took command she understood what was going on she understood how to be a captain and uh, and take charge and bark orders and uh, that there's a hierarchy and a status and uh, she played right into it and uh, the, after that, things went smoothly it went fast after that but it was it turned into a kind of a long job just because of all that waiting and I we shot that scene when they get hit by that white wave and get shot out of the galaxy like seven different times
1: huh.
0: we did it I think twice with jean and then she was gone and then Kate came back and then we did it a couple more times and they kept changing her hair <laughs> so they did that for all seven seasons so we kept shooting it uh until they decided what she was going to look like for that first episode and uh so we shot that scene a lot but it all in all i can't remember it was a long shoot i was on that shoot for almost a month so it was a good job it was just weird that i never came back Hmm. i don't know if i offended somebody or what happened but uh uh, like I say, I feel like it's a hole in the canon that Lieutenant Rollins just disappears and is nowhere to be seen. Are you aware that they
1: actually uh, do mention your character in season two?
0: Yeah, and also somebody told me that I'm in some of those books, some of those Star Trek novellas or whatever they're called. I've I've heard that they talk about that too.
1: Yeah, so Rollins did live on, just off screen, basically.
0: Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Pretty pretty, pretty integral guy to just disappear, though, with a light <laughs> staff. Yeah, exactly, yeah.
2: Trek Untold will return momentarily. Trek Untold is sponsored by Triple Fiction Productions. Celebrating 15 years in business in 2023, TFP creates 3D-printed Star Trek and sci-fi-inspired items that fit into any collection. Whether you're a cosplayer who wants a Starfleet phaser, a Bajoran tricorder, or a Klingon dagger... Or a toy collector looking for that special accessory or diorama to make your figures truly stand out? Triple Fiction Productions has exactly what you need. And for you figure fanatics, that includes products that are the perfect size for Galoob, Mego, Playmates, and everything in between. All products are 3D printed in the US with new designs constantly being updated on their website. Repeat customers can sign up for TFP's loyalty program for free, which is a great way to save money as you build your collection. Repeat customers can sign up for TFP's loyalty program for free, which is a great way to save money as you build your collection. Repeat customers can sign up for TFP's loyalty program for free, where the more you order, the more discounts you receive. TFP also has a pay-what-you-want section, where clearance or misprinted items are available at a discounted price. Best of all, every product can be shipped worldwide. As a special bonus for listeners of this show, Trek Untold has a special discount code just for you. Enter Untold10 at checkout. 10% off of all orders with no minimum purchase required. That's 10% off using Untold10. To see all of their products, head to triple-fictionproductions.net. Or to stay up to date on their newest products, find them on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Triple Fiction Productions, where something is only impossible until it happens.
3: Hey, I'm Licia Naff, a.k.a. Ensign Sonia Gomez from Star Trek TNG. And now, Captain Sonia Gomez on Lower Decks with her own ship, the Archimedes. Yay! I finally got a promotion after 25 years. So anyway, I'm here to talk about drivebyDougaters.org. It's a little charity I run where we go to the outskirts of Skid Row. And from our car windows, we hand out basic human essentials like water, wipes, cold stream, cheese, socks, tarps, masks, t-shirts, things to keep people warm. So we just think that everyone deserves clean water, some protein, and a way to clean themselves, especially during Corona. We also hand out masks to those who really, really need it, who live in tents on the street, mainly the disabled and elderly who have a really hard time getting to services. We do all of this with no agenda, just pure giving, no overhead. If you'd like to go to the website and donate, it's 100% 100% tax deductible, and if you click on the donate button, you can go right to the $35 option and pick a signed autograph picture of either the Star Trek: The Next Generation or Lord X or Total Recall, where I played the three-breasted mutant hooker on Mars, and uh, that's the x ray version. Put in the comments section your address and anything you'd like me to write, and I'll personally inscribe it and mail it off to you immediately. And again, that's drivebydougaders.org. Ensign, I mean. Captain Sonia Gomez
1: signing off. Oh, well, you know what's kind of fun looking at uh, your your Trek roles here, Scott, is you know, you did your first DS9 as Tosk, that's season one, and very early in season one, and here you are now in as early as you can get with Voyager. So you know, you've seen these two sets before a lot of other people in the world are seeing them. So, you know, I just want to talk about the Voyager set itself. Like what did you think of the first time you stepped onto that bridge? And more importantly, you know, again, because you are one of the first people ever seeing it, did you sit in the captain's chair?
0: I did sit in the captain's chair. Uh, uh, I, I can't remember if, I don't think the scene that I did where I'm sitting in it made it in the show. I think I'm walking around the bridge, but I did sit in it and I, and they did film me in it. Uh, I also drove that boat. I was down front driving the, driving the Voyager and I also ran the uh, tactical station up above, uh, before they put I think Tuvok up there. Um yep. But uh it was fun because I was one of the first ones on it. I was on it a lot because we were standing around and waiting a lot and uh looking at all those boards and looking at all that stuff and all of, and there's there there were great little jokes written into the control boards.
1: Uh, those are there's, the acutograms. There's,
0: there's things written on them little jokes and Elvis was here and stuff like that in in and around on there that you would never see unless you did a close up right on it uh but yeah it was it was pretty thrilling to be on the bridge of a new starship and uh you know to be helming it uh at one point
1: and it's worth pointing out too that this is your only star trek appearance where you're not completely dressed up as an alien you're yourself Wearing a Starfleet uniform, I mean, I would hope yeah, that would be better, I but I mean, also, was it at least the Starfleet uniform put, comfy?
0: They just put those little um, triangular Captain Kirk sideburns on me. That was my makeup. Easy day in the chair. Yeah, fifteen minutes. <laughs> <It> was <laughs> awesome. Yeah.
1: So, was the uniform itself comfy? Do you recall that? Yeah, it was fine. All right. I've heard some fine. people say it was too tight sometimes, but it was all right. No problem. I mean, considering you, again, you were you were tossed for six hours, makeup, and then. Running around all day in that, I imagine anything compared to that is comfortable.
0: Yeah, it was in, in comparison to TOSK, everything is comfortable. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, I didn't, I didn't. Uh, easy to get in and out of, which was great too. You know, which isn't the case with the Romulans and the uh, uh, Jem Hadar and TOSK and even Dolem. You know that the, that wardrobe, I needed help. That was the pilot episode, and then I was, and then I was gone.
1: Yeah. I mean, Rollins still was around. I mean, as far as we know, he never was added to the kill count. So he just was off somewhere else doing whatever Rollins was doing. But uh, fans at
0: conventions always ask me what happened to him. And I always say he was chained to an oar in the bottom of the boat. (laughs) So, well, since we didn't
1: mention the Jem'Hadar, I think this is a good time to start talking about your next DS9 appearance. And that is in Uh the fourth season episode Hippocratic Oath. And you are the Goran Agar. Um, So this is a good episode. This is one I've actually had to watch a bunch of times for this particular podcast because I've talked to a lot of folks involved in it. Uh, So, yeah, how'd you get cast for this episode?
0: This one, they, uh, I was in a series of commercials, the Bud Light Ladies' Night guys, men dressed up like ladies to get cheap beer on Ladies' Night, discount nights, Uh, and we were pretty popular, and we had, I can't, I don't remember, nine national commercials or something, six regional in Texas, and, uh, but... They sent us out on personal appearances a lot. And uh, they called my theatrical agents, Star Trek called, and said, we want to meet Scott for a potential role. And I was like in New Orleans or something uh, and couldn't be there. And I just told my agents, I'll be back in L.A. on Monday. I can meet him on Monday. Apparently, this was like a Wednesday. And then they called Thursday and they called Friday. Where is he? Why can't we see him? We want to see him. What's going on? So I went on the Monday down to Paramount and went into the meeting, and it was Iris Stephen Bear, Renee Abergionois, and they wanted to talk to me. And I walked in the door. I was excited. I thought, "Cool, Star Trek." you know, this is exciting. And, uh, Ron Serma had made the phone call, the casting director, Ron Serma, all hail Ron Surma. He, Ron helped me a lot in my career. He had me in a lot for a lot of good stuff on Star Trek. He thought of me for things and, uh, uh, and Junie Lowry Johnson, who was his superior too. Uh, and, uh, I got in walked in the door and Ira scowled at me and said, You're a hard guy to get a hold of. And I was kind of taken aback. I was a little startled by that. And I saw Renee was there and I didn't know why he was there. And, uh, I said, yeah, I was doing a personal appearance tour. I, I just got, I came back. I got back last night at about nine o'clock at night. I'm happy to be here. Uh, you know, I was just unavailable last week. I was on a job. Well, what were you doing? He says to me. And luckily, I had just happened as I was walking out of the house where they had these little pop-up stand-up things that were in the bar of the Bud Light ladies to advertise stuff. You know, our goofy faces. And uh, the whole thing was very silly and fun. And uh, so I took it out and I said I was doing this and I handed it to him. And that kind of broke the ice. He started laughing and said, oh, my God. And I said, yeah, it's, it said, it's a crazy, crazy job. Don't ask me. It's just crazy. And uh he said, well, like, how tied up are you? We have we have we we think we'd kind of like you to maybe do something. This is the role. And they told me it's the first Jem Hadar. Who's going to speak a lot. And we're kind of concerned because it's a heavy duty makeup and it's a ton of dialogue. And uh we need an actor who can handle the wardrobe and the costumes and the makeup. And I was told, and I don't know if this is the case or not, uh, that Renee said, what about the guy who played Tosk? So that was how I got the call, I think. Hmm. So I went in and they said, but it's a lot of makeup again. And w- we thought we'd ask you because we know Tosk was brutal and you had a difficult time. Tosk was a very popular character on the lot at Paramount. And with that show, they really liked that character and that performance. Uh, so he had a little carryover for me in that regard. Uh, so, and I said, of course, I'd love to do it. And I have a, I have a great window of opportunity right now. I've got a couple of weeks before I have to go back out on the road in the dress and messing around for Bud Light. And, uh, that was kind of the process. Uh, I don't remember that I had to go in and read. I think they were holding auditions in case they couldn't get a hold of me type of thing. Hmm. Uh, and then, uh, but I wound up getting to, getting to play him. It wasn't, it was a pretty quick turnaround after that meeting where we started. And Renee Obergeois directed the episode, which is the reason he was there and the reason uh, he, he was able to suggest, what about the guy who played Tosk? So, and it was the first episode that Renee directed of Deep Space Nine was that one. And again, I got really fortunate. I was really good writing. Hippocratic Oath is really well written and
1: very uh, meaty episode. Very, very good episode.
0: A lot there. Yeah, just a ton of stuff to play. And again, I, you know, as Tosk, I'm the first creature to come through the wormhole. Uh, as Nivek, I am working for Spock's underground. That's, there's a lot of stuff there to play. Uh uh a spy within a spy culture in in that one. And then as the Gem Hadar, I'm the first Gem Hadar with a conscience.
1: Mm, yeah.
0: The first free thinking Gem Hadar who's off the white. He's not addicted to the Ketracell White, so he's a free thinker. And he has a conscience. He's dealing with it. He's it's not he's he hasn't come to terms with everything yet, but he has feelings about his men that he owes them something and uh, it, gave it, it gave it good pathos. And it was really fun to get to work with Colm again. We we had, we had gotten along well when I was tossed and also Sid. There was a cool thing that happened on that one. I was called, okay, 5.30 makeup call. Going to be about a three and a half hour makeup, we think. So come in at 5.30 so you can be on the set at 9, 9.30. Okay. Then in the eleventh hour, the night before, they literally called and said, "Not, don't come till nine And I thought, "Boy, that's going to start Goranagar late in the day because it's going to take a while to get my stuff on." But they're the boss, you know. Okay, great. And uh, I got to my trailer and uh, put all my stuff away and walked over to makeup. And when I got to the makeup trailer, all of the Deep Space Nine regulars, except Avery, were there. And they had all requested to see what the guy who played Toss <laughs> looked like. <laughs> they had never seen my face. I was before I, I would get there before them and leave after them when I played Toss, So nobody saw my face except Colmini. Meany. So uh, that was cool of them, you know. It was just a really unique and cool thing. I got to meet them all and shake their hands and, uh, they all just wanted to see what Tosk looked like out of the makeup. And, uh, it's quite a compliment. Yeah. It was really nice. It was really cool of them. It made me feel at home right away. And, uh, that helps when you're a guest star because guest star acting is an interesting thing. You job in and you got to be really good, but it's not your, not your house, (laughs) you know. Yeah I really
1: liked your description much like I've been saying the last time we talked also your your description of who Garnagar is and like what you saw in him and uh, you know he is a very conflicted character and that really shows in how you portrayed him. Uh so you know I'd like to hear a little bit now too and seeing how this plays into how you did the character. Uh what was it like being directed by Renee? I mean did he help you with your process did he kind of let you do your own thing?
0: Uh what do you recall about the way he worked? He was good. He he was he was he was uh, dealing a lot more with um the technical aspects of things, uh, just ironing things out with Marvin Rush, the DP, and things like that. He was uh, because it was his first one, and and he was asking Marvin a lot. And Marvin's good at, really good at his job. So, uh, as far as the performance went, he was pretty easy. He didn't he, he didn't really steer the, my performance in any. In any, didn't say, oh, don't do that, do it this way or anything like that. There was one day when the hadar shimmer and then disappear. They have that capability. And uh, I was supposed to walk along this set piece that they had, and they had some fake uh, plants on it. And they wanted me to brush up against the plants. So, cause that would help the special effect cause that the plants would still be moving and I would disappear was the idea of the special effect. Well, the air conditioning was off in the studio. It had broken and gone off. So it was unbelievably hot inside that studio. And they would actually load me and my fellow Jim Hadar onto a golf cart and drive us over to another air conditioned room outside the studio. So there were these hilarious sort of clown car seven, <laughs> seven Jim Hadar jammed onto one little golf cart riding over to somewhere. I'm That's sure. Hollywood. Yeah. I'm sure the, you know, the studio tours really had a great time looking at <laughs> that stuff. But, uh but I was standing over there and they had these huge fans going because it was so hot in there. So the split second, they'd say, cut those fans would go on again. So, I couldn't hear anything. I was in white noise completely. And when you're inside that thing, there's already this sort of cacophony because that latex is over your ears. So, you don't hear very well. And unless somebody's right in front of you, you can't see them very well. There were no contact lenses in this one, which was a joy for me because the contact lenses were brutal on Tosk. And, uh, I, I, One time Renee was saying things, talking, talking, pointing, talking, and then we would shoot it and cut. Let's do it again. Turn the fans on, talking, talking, talking. And then they'd say, okay, we're going to shoot it. And I'd say, okay. And I couldn't figure out why we were shooting me walking through the jungle so many times, but okay. And finally, after the third one, Renee came over to me and he was completely exasperated said, why won't you do what I'm telling you to do? Do you have a problem with me? And I was stunned. I was completely taken aback. I said, I have no idea what you're talking about. Have you been directing me? I can't hear anything inside this suit. And with the fans on, I can't hear anything at all. Have you been talking to me from down there? And he said, Yes, I have. And I said, Come on, you're Odo. You know what it's like inside here. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> just stand right in front of me and talk to me. I can't hear you. And he said, We need you to brush up against the bushes when you walk. And I said, I'm sorry. I, I didn't hear you. So, of course, we got it one take later. Yeah. You know? But that was the only time there was anything remotely controversial or anything. He's just Renee of Bergamois such a great human being, such a, I mean, what a loss, what a guy, just fantastic. Do you want to hear my Rene Auberjonois story? Oh, of course, of course I do. Years later, I was in the parking lot of a Starbucks and I saw Rene walk into his car and I jumped out of my car and I walked over and I said, Rene, Renee, Renee. And he was like, oh, here I go. I got to talk to a Star Trek fan or something in his mind. And I said, my name, I'm Scott McDonald. I, I, I was Garanagar in Hippocratic Oath when you directed me on Deep Space Nine. Oh, my goodness. How nice to see you. I never would have recognized you. And I said, yeah, that's the point, isn't it? You know, and uh, uh, he said, what are you doing right now? You know, and I said, I'm just going to I'm just just finished an audition. I'm going to go over and get a coffee in Starbucks. And, I said, I'll buy you a cup of coffee if you want. Buy my director a cup of coffee. And, uh, he said, I'll have a cup of coffee with you. And we went in Starbucks and we just sat. And, uh, Renee is, uh, a, a theater trained Broadway, well trained, uh, actor from way back. And, uh, I, uh, he wanted to hear about the play, the Kentucky Cycle that I was in. And, so we talked a lot about theater that day and just, just it was probably an hour and a half just laughing and talking theater. And it was just a thrill for me just to sit with an actor of his caliber and uh, a guy with a career like that and to have that association with him, you know, that he had directed me.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And uh, uh, yeah, I was I was sad when he went. He was a really, really, really nice man
1: renee played my favorite character of all time in star trek as odo and uh you know like yeah. his i think a lot of his performance really did change the way i kind of look at star trek acting so yeah. you know like the, the things he did as that character were just really amazing the work he put into that character to make that character's story apparent on screen it uh, was a real wonderful thing and uh, i'm sad this podcast unfortunately was around uh before then but yeah it's it's one of those great losses for me too i never got to even meet the guy in person either so
0: yeah, I'm just, glad that, that, was just, that was just a thrill to get to sit with him just an amazing experience and and i had some scenes with him when i was tossed and uh and and then he directed me so i had you know, i had some nice experiences with him uh and uh he was uh he did a good job he asked me point blank how was i did i dire- was i a good director you know we all have our idiosyncratic insecurities we thespians so uh you know and i said well i thought you were really good in our episode and the episode it's really well written and it turned out really good it's it's a really good little bottle episode of star trek deep space nine i think yeah even if i do say so myself i think that's a well-written episode and uh uh that relationship between o'brien and bashir fighting about whether or not they should help me it's it's really good really yeah. good writing
1: like i said earlier i've had to watch this episode a lot for this podcast because i've talked to a lot of the folks who are involved in either production or you know writing the episode for example so i've had to watch it a lot and uh it's not really a chore for me to watch this one because it is such a good deep complex episode and yeah you know, it's also worth noting here that uh, both of your ds9 appearances have very tragic characters in my opinion uh you know it's like here in this episode we're talking about this character is and he is off the catch with cell white. He wants to help his men, but in the end, he can't. Tosk is living the greatest adventure ever, but that is essentially to be hunted for his entire life until he's done. Uh so right. it's very heavy, very Shakespearean stuff too. Uh very tragic stuff. And again, yeah, I guess I'm just saying this to kind of compliment you in your work, because uh yeah, I don't know who could have done these characters better. So yeah. Great job oh, well, again. That's all. Just throw so more compliments
0: you. to you. Thank you. Thank you very much. I, I'm proud of both of those performances. I i uh, uh I had I, I... I got lucky i got to i got to play some cool stuff on star trek
1: well i think it's time for us to get into the big ones scott uh because we're going to talk about i guess the meatiest role you've had in the star trek universe we're talking star trek enterprise where you got to play commander dolem for i believe it's eight episodes uh starting with the third season episode titled zindi and we see you all the way through to the end of the season in zero hour so nice. uh again was this one a callback or is this one like hey we have a complex role we need scott for this
0: this was a, uh, we want to talk to you about something, but once again, it's a ton of makeup, uh, meeting. Um, I can't remember if there were, whether if I auditioned for it officially, or if they just kind of knew they were going to want somebody who could handle the gear handle mm-hmm. the latex, but Brandon Braga, Rick Berman, Somebody else were in that meeting. It was great. It was just nice to be welcomed and to feel like their trust you don't have any idea going in the door what what all it's going to be and uh that it was a unique circumstance because it wasn't long after nine eleven and you see the parallels of that season to nine eleven this attack on Florida, and then they they were debating. They said, We got a lot of stuff we got iron out. We aren't even sure which direction we're going to go with it. We're taking some chances. Uh, We're going to, we're sending, basically sending the Marines out into space, which has never happened on Star Trek before. Uh, They're actually not on a peaceful mission, uh, which was Roddenberry's thing. And they got some flack for that from. People were saying this is against Rodney, you know the prime directive and blah, 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 blah. But this stuff all predates all of that stuff technically in the Star Trek universe. So they're learning on the fly and, uh, getting to be that kind of villain and getting to play it a lot was great for me. You, you got to develop the character a great deal more, uh, than, than, than obviously other episodes being in one great friend of mine who was also in the Kentucky cycle with me uh from its inception in Seattle to winning the Pulitzer Prize to being in LA to the Kennedy Center and then into Broadway was Randy Oglesby who plays Degra so when I got to set and Randy was there it was great old home week I had an actor there uh who I had a shorthand with Randy and I had worked together a lot and uh, knew each other really well. We were good friends and had a great deal of experience together. The first scene is just that sort of political talk. They're all sitting around that table talking and Deg was there and they're discussing the weapon and the politics a little bit. And the, we were rehearsing it, rehearsing it. And the writers came in, Brandon Braga came in. They said, you know, we're, we're kind of uncertain where we're going to go with this. We still don't know yet, but it's not your guy's fault. It's our fault. There's nothing really. The scenes kind of lay in there. We welcome your ideas, things like that. They were, it was collaborative. Uh, uh, and a lot of times on Star Trek, it isn't collaborative. It's like, here's the dialogue and don't change a word of it. Uh, and. We were kind of having these conversations and you could feel it in the room, Tucker Smallwood, great actor, Rick Worthy, really good actor. All of us feeling like, yeah, yeah, it's just, it's just not it's just not happening, is it? And uh I leaned over to Randy and said, because they, they were they were comparing, they're saying like they were saying to us these are sort of like rival Arab nations who have band together against the United States. This is rival cultures banding together to fight the humans, the Federation. So we did the scene and I leaned over to Randy and said, how about this? How about my race hates your race at face value? And Randy said, okay, okay. And he said, do you think we should say anything to him? And I said, no, let's just, let's just play it let's see so i just started to treat everything he said with pure disdain even though it made sense Degros oppenheimer he's got the bomb and uh i and randy such a fine actor just was a little offended and Got a little antsy and didn't like being spoken to in that way, uh, but he didn't say anything. He just digested it. Mm. And, uh, then the scene kind of took on a life. And then, uh, I was told later that the, that the writers love that vibe and they kind of wrote at it. They wrote at that vibe. They wrote at that dynamic. And we got more and more and more scenes where that was encouraged where they would write it in Manny Cotto, Brandon Braga, a lot of really good writers writing at that conflict because conflict is King. And uh, so within the framework of all the other stuff that's going on, where they're breaking all these rules of federation. And I mean, I, there's a lot of pathos in that season. I mean, you know, Scott Bakula bombs out a bunch of Zindi on a moon. Yeah. Cause he doesn't want him to give away his position. That's, you know unlike anything you'd ever seen in star trek i got degra like a fish and hold the bloody knife over him and tell him i'm going to go do the same to your wife and kid you've never seen anything like that on a star trek episode before you know yeah. so i was reveling in the glory of great writing and great villainy uh i just saw this guy when i saw them ma- when they started to put that mask on me and they and the way the wardrobe was and everything i just i saw him as a battering ram and uh I just played him that way, and uh that way, uh Tucker and Randy could be much more nuanced, much more political, much more uh looking for empathy, looking for compromise, and I was an uncompromising warlord. That's my memory of of that great job hmm. was It was very collaborative, very great, and uh I got to say some great lines of villainous glory that were written by those fine writers over there. I mean, uh, you know, that line, when I say to that guy, if you ever speak that way again, your skin will adorn the bow of my ship. (laughs) Things like that, you know, throw off lines of just this despicably brutal leader who has one thing and one thing in his mind. And that's just kill all humans. Mm.
1: Dolem is such a fun character. He's such a fun evil bastard, basically, and uh, Mm -hmm. you know, we've talked a lot about the character, and I I hate to harp on this part of it, because that's basically been like most of the interview, but we do need to talk about that makeup, because I'm kind of wondering, what was more arduous? Was it Tosk, or was it Dolem? Because, to be quite honest, as far as, like, scary monster reptiles go, I mean, Dolem looked pretty beautiful. I mean, that costume is outstanding.
0: Tosk was way harder.
1: Really? Okay, because I I was wondering about that, because Dolem's got a lot of weight on him, too, it looked like. Tosk
0: was Tosk was a six-hour makeup with hard cat's-eye contact lenses glued inside my lips, the mask with fangs. Uh, Tosk was way harder. Uh, But Dolom was four hours, the makeup. But they were soft contacts by that time. They didn't use hard contact lenses, and that made a big difference. The, The contact lenses were nowhere near as painful. Those hard, I don't, I don't wear contacts. So wearing those hard contact lenses tossed was incredibly difficult, and incredibly painful. A lot of days, really painful. They would scratch the interior of my eye and things like that. Uh, it was rough, but uh, but Dolan was exhausting too. It was hot. It was hot in there. But I, I, that was one of the things when we were in the meeting when we were talking about the part. I said, look, I just, I really, really must get your assurances that I can get out of the wardrobe in between. I don't want the mask and the suit to be all connected like they were as tossed. Cause it's too hot. It's just too grueling. And, uh, and it's, you know, a lot, I, I, there was a lot of those Zindi episodes where I worked eight out of eight days yeah. in, the, in the makeup. Uh, and, uh, so yeah, that, in the comparison of those two, for sure, uh, it would be Tosk, then Dolem, then Garanagar, then Quelon. as far as the difficulty of putting it on and taking it off and having it affect your performance. You know, and of course, Rollins was gravy. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, Rollins was an easy day for sure. Yeah. Uh Now, we alluded to this in our part one as well, but uh, Commander Dolan, he gets a little hungry at one point, and there's some some nomming on some rodents there. uh, Talk to me about that. How does that work for you?
0: Well, there was a lot of stress about it because we were using live mice, and if you dangle those live mice where they want you to dangle it for the camera angle, they would pee (laughs) sometimes. So you didn't want to get peed on by a mouse and you didn't want to get it all over the makeup. So, uh, they were pretty careful in that one. They were pretty careful. Uh, and of course, you know, we hold them all up and they're all doing their thing, you know, and you know, no animals were harmed in the making of this, you know what I mean? Uh, so there was somebody there watching there was a tech there watching to make sure that the mice were okay and that we were okay. And, uh, uh, we had to figure out camera angles so that we could, it would look like they were right over our mouth, but we were holding it far enough away that in case they wet, they wouldn't wet on us. And, uh, then of course a cutaway and, uh, then a fake mouse that they had built. Would go in the mouth, and I actually have one of those mice. The prop master gave it to me when the shoot was over. He said, "Do you want to keep one of these?" And I said, "I'll keep it if you'll give it to me." I said, "But clear it with everybody. I don't want somebody to say I walked off set with something that I shouldn't have." And I said, "I'll just go talk to Mary Howard. Was uh, a great uh, producer on that, and uh, I just went over to her and said, he's telling me I can take this mouse home.'" I just want to make sure it's okay. And she said, it's okay.
1: (laughs) Of all the props to take home, man, I've heard people who got like their frangy lobes or the Bajoran nose. You got a mouse.
0: I got a mouse. I have a full Dolem mask too.
1: Oh, wow. They, They let you keep one of those. Or do you have it made afterwards?
0: No, they were, we were in the last episode and, uh, they had made me six of them. And I only wore. Two. I wore one for the first, I, we we didn't we didn't go through that many of them. They thought we'd go through way more of them than we did. Dolom went on in four parts, four parts. Yeah, Dolan went on in four pieces. Uh, and uh, I can't remember exactly how it went down. My stunt man was there. It was the final episode, the Titanic battle between me and Scott Bakula on the bridge of the Death Star, just like you know, Luke and Darth. <laughs> You know, and if you can't be the captain of the Enterprise, you might as well be the villain who's fighting him, right? Hmm. And uh, we, they were pulling my original mask off the stuntman because I had a new one that day. And they used the one from the day before on my stuntman. And uh, Michael Westmore was in there and uh, he had designed it and made it and everything. He looked it over and threw it in the garbage the back half, the head half that had all that weird hair of mine in it. And, uh, I said, you're going to throw that away. And he said, yeah. And I said, I thought you always melted them back down and used the latex again. And he said, I can't because of all that stuff from those fake hairs in your head. So it's not worth cutting it up and trying to do it. So can I have it? And, uh, He said, oh, boy, uh, I don't know. You're going to have to find you're going to have to ask a producer or something. And I said, well, take it out and put it in a bag and I'll ask him. He said, "Okay." Then the stuntman came in and they were pulling that old mask off him and he looked it over and he threw the back half of it away. And then he threw the front half away. And I said, can I have that front half? (laughs) And Westmore said, Same deal. So I got it out of the garbage and put it in a bag. And then I just walked back over to the, and so I was out of all my makeup and everything. And I wanted to go say goodbye to the crew and everything, because it was my last day. And uh, I uh, went in and I found Mary Howard and I said, here's the situation. Michael Westmore's thrown all this stuff away. I said, do you mind if I, mind if I take it? And, uh, and she said, If Michael Westmore says you can have it, as far as I'm concerned, you can have it. So I have a, a full Commander Dolan mask. It's not in any shape. It's all beat up from taking it on and taking it off and all that stuff. But it's on one of those wig heads, you know, and in a box in my office. I always thought that I would try to take it somewhere to somebody like Westmore or somebody and say, let's fix it and mount it. And I'll put a glass tube around it and have it, have it, you know, keep it as a keepsake. But I never did it, you know, didn't get around to it, I guess. Kind of silly. I mean, I've got it sitting sitting here. It's probably disintegrating. I haven't looked at it for a while.
1: I mean, it is screen worn. So the fact that it has like all of you literally on it makes it more valuable, too. So, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, it's, it's pretty know, awesome. It's it's cool full, to have.
0: Yeah, it's fully it's 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 fully mine. It's one that I wore a lot <laughs> for sure.
1: I'm also glad you mentioned that the final fight you had with Archer. I wanted to actually ask you about your last episode. Uh In particular, you know, because I've heard that Scott Bakula is a fairly handy performer. Like, he likes to do a lot of his own stunts when possible, and he likes to do the fight scenes. For you guys, uh, how much of that is you and Scott? And how much of it is your doubles?
0: Most of it is me and Scott. I, 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 they There was a scene where um I had to jump down in this hole, hmm. this open space. And it was a fairly good little drop, maybe five feet. I probably could have done it. But, uh, had this big choir robe kind of thing on, and that we called it the birdcage, that big sort of steel thing that he wears, chest plate thing. And, uh, uh, wardrobe was like, no, 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 you know, <laughs> use the secondary one, get a stunt man, you know. And, uh, so my stunt guy came and he jumped down into that hole. And there was one other one. I think it was when Scott was hanging off. Hanging off the rail and hanging on. One of the lead stunt guys got kind of freaked out and didn't want me to go up there and do that. They wanted a stunt guy to be with Scott on that one. But I had, I have a lot of stage combat training and everything. So, uh, in that scene, uh, not in the final one, but in, uh, Azadi Prime, uh, which is one of the episodes in the middle of the season when I've got Bakula in chains and I'm beating on him, uh, there's quite a bit of me grabbing him and squeezing his head and messing with him. Cause I'm interrogating him. And, uh, I remember I had talked to him about it and I was just lightly holding him and then shaking my hand so that it would look like I was really, really squeezing his head. And right in the middle of the scene, the stunt guy, Asked the director to call cut and walked over and said, you can't really squeeze his head like that and was like kind of scolding me and everything. And I said, no, I, I know I'm not really even holding his hair. He's hanging onto my hand. He's doing all the movement. I, he, Scott's in complete control. I said, I, I, I got it. Don't worry. I, I'd never hurt the lead, you know, <laughs> and, uh, but, uh, so I, at least you knew this, it was playing realistically when, the stunt man fell for it. So uh but yeah, he did he did do a lot of his own stuff, and uh uh he was a great lead actor on a series. Scott really is. He was really good. There was a few times one day I was kind of hitting the wall. It was about hour twelve. And a lot of times what ends up happening when you're doing those things and is they film the leads first. And then they turn it around to you, and you know hour twelve inside there, sweating and battling and fighting, and you're not really eating properly because it kind of messes up the makeup so uh a lot of times exhaustion is on you when you're filming your best stuff, hmm. and uh I was kind of slouching and leaning and pretty tired. And I felt a hand on my back and he, he knew to come around to the front because <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't see anything. He came around to the front and said, how's it going in there today? And I said, I'm slamming into it. Scott, I'm just hitting the wall today. I said, it just, I said, it's really hard in here. I said, and, and he said just the way it works is they shoot you guys first, then they shoot us. So we're always in our 12 before we do our stuff. And he got this expression on his face and said, I never thought about it. After that, many times I shot first when my scenes were with him. And I know that was because he said, let's reverse the order. He's inside there. Let's get him first. You know, I know he responded to what I said. I I thought that was pretty classy because he certainly doesn't have to. He's a star of a Star Trek show, but, uh, but he responded to it and, uh, and it was helpful because, uh, certain episode or somewhere you know i'm in the episode but i only worked a day or something you know but uh there were others where it was wall-to-wall me in that suit eight straight days and uh you know by day five when you get in that makeup chair you're thinking boy you know i'm already tired and i haven't even started yet <laughs> i don't even have the makeup on yet and i'm already bone tired so uh that was a classy play by him. He was a, he was a good lead, good lead of a series. He always knew his lines, always on his mark, always on time, never fussy, never complaining, always working hard. Uh, uh, good example is the word I'm looking for. He was a good example for everybody else, which is what a lead should be. Right.
1: Mm, It's a very generous thing to do. Now, yeah. you know, this This is your final Trek role. So, you know, from the very first time you're as Tosk to all the way here as Commander Dolom, what techniques did you find that ultimately improved your performance and also helped you to not kill yourself while wearing all those crazy heavy costumes?
0: Well, you learn to pace yourself. Uh, I didn't pace myself great as Tosk. I was pretty exhausted as Tosk, and uh, but it was also the nature of that particular costume I couldn't get out of it ever so once I got hot I stayed hot
1: Hmm.
0: Uh, and uh, um, I think I said before I lost 16 and a half pounds in an eight-day shoot on that guy Um, the use of the mask when you're sitting in that makeup chair for all those hours uh, while I was playing Tosk I sort of started to look at the mask in the mirror and begin to understand how to make it work for me instead of against me just by bobbing my head, moving it. How does it catch the light? What does it look like when I'm like this? What does it look like when I'm like that? Uh, I remember I was doing a lot of turns like that as tossed. And finally, Michael Westmore came to me and said, I don't want you to do that anymore because it's bun. The costume is bunching up. the The mask is bunching up when you turn your head. So don't turn so far. So I really had to learn like the mechanics of like I would put my arm down a little bit straighter and then turn so that that wouldn't do that. So there were little tricks like that. And then each mask was different in that regard. Uh, and I would do that. Just sit in front of the mirror and study. how. To, what does this look like? What does that look like? When I say this line, if I go like that, is that effective? If I raise up like I, there's a lot of raising up for the prideful lines as tossed. Because that mask would catch that light and he would look really uh regal kind of uh and that's just i I mean that was just me studying that mask in the mirror and figuring out what worked and what didn't as best I could because you don't want it to look like a big rubber mask, you want it to look like a creature and uh uh you are buried in there and it is a lot of work so um yeah there's there was quite a there was quite a genesis in all of them they were all different. Studied them all differently. Uh, The Klingon, probably the easiest one to not – got a lot of your own face when you're a Klingon. You've got a mouth and your eyes and stuff. Uh, But no contact lenses as Garanagar. There were contact lenses, cat's-eye contact lenses as both Dolom and Tosk. So sometimes there would be a cut while they had to roll my eye back into place. <laughs> Those were always awkward. And it's really strange to have somebody else put their finger in your eye.
1: So, Scott, uh, before we move on here, I do want to have just one last Star Trek thing. And we did talk about this last episode, too. Uh, and that is because right behind you for part two, we have Tosk with us. We have the Playmates Tosk action figure that's from your personal collection there. And uh, you also have the Dolom Mate. So uh, do you want to do some show and tell with us today?
0: Sure. There's Tosk, the action figure. He's got Canada. a pog too. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's a mint on card, as they say, right? Yep. Yeah. I have one that's out of the box, uh, in our little breakfast nook. He's standing in there. But, uh, I always thought it was really cool that they gave me the drinking cup <laughs> from the scene with Quark in the yeah. bar, which is a very fun Star Trek scene. They, my, the weapon is in there from that I take off of the hunter. But the uh, I, th- I thought it was interesting because Tosk doesn't eat or drink. <laughs> but they gave him a cup because yeah. I had some business with it on the set. I, would, I was looking at it and trying to figure out what it was for and why they gave it to me. Uh, and now that you've seen all, that thing eye
1: to eye, what do you think of the likeness? Does it look like
0: you as much yeah, as i can? Th- yeah, this thing, this, thing is, uh, this thing was cool. And I was thrilled when it came out. It also had a card, the Playmates card you know that it came with and uh it has that little stand that he stands on that comes in it and and the whole thing but yeah i've signed a few of them over the years at conventions and uh yeah i just went and found this one today because i knew we were going to do part two so i went and i got it and then i also have the uh uh
1: that's the uh, mini mates from uh, diamond select
0: yeah I, I, i i'm trying to get the reflection off it so you can see it but uh
1: and I totally forgot you had that figure made too, because I knew about Tosk because I have Tosk, but I, I totally forgot about that great two pack, and he even has a little tiny Scott Bakula with him.
0: Yeah, exactly. It's the, it was the 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 captains and their main enemies, Captain Archer and Dolem. But uh, yeah, this one was I, I didn't even know this was out. I was at a convention and somebody brought it by and had me sign it, and so I went running around and found one and bought it because I wanted, <laughs> you know. I want I wanted, I wanted a, a toy of my action figure, you know. So those were fun. And tons of cards, they are out there. Mm. You know. Tons of them. They're I'm on so many of them it's I'm amazed by it. And people send them to me, you know, sometimes in the mail or you know, they want me to sign them and send them back or whatever. But uh, uh and sometimes they bring them up to me at the conventions. There's guys who collect only the cards from that Star Trek game that they play. Mm, yep. I, you know, I I you know and I'm on a bunch of those, too. Uh, there's a Rollins, a Nivek, a Tosk, and a Garanagar in those games. So, yeah.
1: You're forever immortalized in, in various forms.
0: <laughs> way way more than I deserve.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I disagree with that because you did some amazing work. So, yeah, no, it's, it's totally all deserved. Uh, the fact that you had to go through six hours and make up a day for Tosk, I mean, I think that right there is worthy of getting a toy.
0: I was proud of that performance. That was a hard job inside that suit. I was really (laughs) happy that he came off sympathetic.
1: All right. So, Scott, you know, you are still a working actor. You're still hustling. uh, So I'd love to hear what's new with you right now. What are you working on and where can we see you next?
0: The pandemic slowed things down for me a great deal, along with every other actor around. Um, There's a cool little movie called The Last Champion. That's got uh, stars Cole Hauser, who is right now rocking it on uh, Paramount Network on Yellowstone. Uh, he's the star of the movie. It's a very nice little movie about a high school wrestling team, a story of redemption, uh, a story the whole family can watch. It's called The Last Champion. It is on Amazon Prime. And I just uh, I'm a guy in the town uh, in this small town story. And also there's a kind of a unique little thriller called 3 Day Weekend and I have a starring role in that uh and it's on Showtime right now uh directed by a guy named Wyatt McDill we filmed it in the wilds of northern Minnesota up on this lake in September uh it was a really fun shoot and uh it's a really interesting unique Rashomon style story where they there's four divergent people and four divergent puzzle pieces and they don't come together till the end when you understand what happens so if you're watching and you're confused stick with it because you're supposed to be <laughs> <laughs> that's those are the movies that are out and i'm and doing some conventions and still just knock on the pavement uh and audition and online you know you you film them and submit them now so uh you know, just hoping somebody will ring my bell. It's the high diddle dee the actor's life for me. <laughs> now, do you normally do the big Star Trek
1: convention in Vegas?
0: I've been to it uh, a handful of times over the years. Uh, I did not get invited to the big uh, Deep Space Nine anniversary. I was kind of disappointed. I thought Garanagar and Tosk should have been there. But I've been there and done some of those. And for those of you who are interested in getting the signed autographs and the signed action figures and the signed cards and you can't make it to the conventions, uh, which, you know, with COVID and travel and things being kind of strange, you can go to fullempirepromotions.com and uh, there's a page on there for me with stuff from Jack Frost, with stuff from Star Trek with stuff from some of my movies uh all available to be signed and uh sent out uh as rapidly as we get them we get them out to people so if you know if you want a stocking stuffer or something like that go for it there's actually some weird christmas knickknacks on there from the movie jack frost
1: <laughs> yeah i just found those those look pretty fun actually uh- <laughs> So, all right. Well, cool. Uh, so, Scott, you know, as we come to our conclusion, I'd like to throw you a few of my lightning round questions. I call them lightning round, but they're never really. They're actually probably the hardest questions here. So, uh Scott, best day on a set and worst
0: day ever on a set. Best day on a set. I was shooting a movie in Romania, World War Two movie called Straight Into Darkness. And David Warner is in the movie. All Star Trek fans know David Warner lots of Star Trek roles, incredible actor, unbelievable resume, well-trained British theater actor. And uh, I was sitting in chairs with him on the set. I was starring in the movie. He was coming in to work on it. He has a meaty, smaller role in it. And we were just sitting out having uh, some tea on a break of this dark, macabre fairy tale of a movie. Uh and I asked him a question about Hamlet because I had played it in 1989 in Seattle, and he said, love, have you performed the role? And I said, yes, not in college, not in high school. <laughs> I said, no. I said I did 70 performances or so of it at the Intimon Theater in Seattle in 1989 then let's discuss he said (laughs) so i got to sit and talk to david warner he did a famous one and uh i was pretty thrilled to be sitting talking to this great actor about that great part and uh feeling like we were comrades uh because i really looked up to him i was very 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 excited to get to work with him uh we just recently lost him he's uh He's a whale of a nice, nice man. And, uh, we had a lot of fun shooting that movie. We were in the middle of nowhere in Romania and, and, uh, uh, it was, it was really cool. So, uh, one of the best days getting to hang out with David Warner was pretty cool. How about our worst day on a set? No, no, I don't, I can't, nothing, nothing's really coming to mind. It doesn't technically count as being on a set, but I was, doing a sci-fi convention in San Francisco and Nichelle Nichols and George Takai and Jimmy Dewan and Walter Koenig were there and I was in the green room with them. We were all hanging out and word came down that DeForest Kelly had died. So I was sitting with those people when they got the news that their great friend had passed away uh weird little fly on the wall moment for a Star Trek guy. Uh, so, you know, that was a bad day to be with them and watch their pain. Mm-hmm. They were uh, a, 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 gr- a group of loving, great accepting people. I mean, I always felt, what am I doing in this room with these great actors i played a couple of guest star things you know i don't really have any place sitting by these series regulars but uh uh they were always welcoming they were always kind and that was a tough one to watch their hearts break mm. these people who i'd been growing up watching and rooting for and you know fearing for as a kid you know after school we'd run home because it was on at four o'clock when i was in high school so you'd rush home so you could watch Star Trek, you know. So reruns, of course. But uh uh yeah, as far as worst day on a set, I don't I'm always so happy to be on them. <laughs> you know? I mean, I feel like talking
1: to you in these two interviews, you know, considering that you're a man who sat in makeup chairs for that many hours a day, I feel like you're a pretty patient, chill guy. So I can understand not having too many really bad, horrible days.
0: Yeah, nothing's really coming to mind where, you know, I've been I've been lucky. I haven't really been with anybody who was incredibly awful on a set, Um, at least not to me, thankfully. Um, And. uh, But no, I don't really I don't really have I don't have any dish.
1: (laughs) All right. That's fine, too. Well, how about uh, the role that you're most proud of? And that could be on stage or on screen.
0: Pretty proud of Tosk because it was such a battle. Mm. It was just a war zone inside that suit. It was just nearly impossible to get through some of those days. I remember being just at the end of my rope a couple of days. There was one day when we were filming that thing, when I couldn't remember what we had just done. They said I was filming. I think it was the first scene you see Tosk when he pops up on the screen and he's, they're saying, come on, we'll help you. And he's a little unsure. And I got through it perfectly. And then they said, okay, we're just going to punch in now for a little bit closer one. We're just going to do the same thing again. And I said, what are we doing? And they said, what? Same thing. Same thing again. Same thing you just did. What did we just do? Give me the script. I don't remember. And then I remember somebody, one of the crew guys, one of the one of the guys who slides the doors open and, you know, the IOTC guys, uh, he said, you guys better get some liquids into him. Okay. And uh they got me some Gatorade and a power bar and some stuff like that. Cause I was, I was kind of reaching the end. I was in hour 18 or something that day. And I was starting to unravel inside that suit and it was going to take me almost two to get out of it. Mm. So even if I had to quit right then, you know, so uh, I, I, I'd say Tosk just because of the logistics of all of that stuff and how hard it was to, um, you'd have no idea if you're getting that character through that latex and those contact lenses. So, uh, I was pretty proud of that guy. Mm-hmm. I was also proud of the drill instructor in Jarhead. Uh, there was a lot of, uh, you know, there's a lot of comparisons to Arlie Ermey and Full Metal Jacket and all of that stuff. And, you know, I kinda of thought, well, that's not really a fair comparison. He really was a drill instructor <laughs> in real life. I'm a theater trained actor who hasn't been in the military. So, you know, let's see how Ermi does play in sixty six performances a Hamlet. <laughs> well, you compare me to his DI, then we'll see about these comparisons, you know. But there is an interesting story about that. Uh I finished filming and went out to say goodbye to Sam Mendes, the director. And he said, I didn't want to tell you this, but I got a present from Arlie Ermey. And it was the it's a G.I. Joe size action figure of him. Apparently is out there. And uh, he sent it to Mendez and with a little post-it on it that said. Good luck. And he said, I was going to tell you about it, but I, I wasn't sure whether you'd like that or not, you know, you know, and I just said, well, I'd like to see him play Hamlet. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so uh,
1: that would be the strangest performance of Hamlet ever. I think. <laughs> yeah. A lot of yelling. Yeah. All right. Well, how about a uh, most valuable lesson either about life or acting or both that you still think about and use today?
0: I had a great friend, Charlie Hallahan. He's the guy whose uh, head falls off and sprouts legs in the movie, the thing. And he was in the Kentucky cycle. I keep referencing that play. Um He was in it in Seattle and then in Los Angeles, but then he got a television series and didn't go East with us to Kennedy center and Broadway. And, uh, when I first started out in LA, in Hollywood, he was a good mentor to me. He helped me a lot. And, uh, He gave me a good piece of advice. I got offered a job on Space Above and Beyond, that sci-fi show. And uh, it was a one-day guest star, and I had only done weekly guest stars prior to that, and only the Star Trek ones. So I called him up and said, everybody's telling me don't do a one-day guest star. Make sure you stay a weekly, all this kind of advice. and Charlie said, you want some advice? And I said, yeah. And he said, just get yourself to the set. The idiocy of this business will make you money. (laughs) And it turned out to be true. I took a few jobs in my career thinking, just get yourself to the set. And, uh, I mean, that's what Voyager turned into. It turned into an unbelievably long shoot. Uh, the pilot episode of Threshold, which is a Brandon Braga, uh, Brett Spiner, uh, show. Then, and, uh, I got offered something from that because they knew me from Enterprise. And, uh, uh, same thing with that one. That pilot episode took forever to film. Mm-hmm. And I just, it was just a weirdly fortunate set of circumstances where we filmed my first day and it was all socked in down in Long Beach at this beach on this ship. And um then it was sunny after that every day for a while and they kept bringing me down there, but it didn't match. So we didn't keep shooting and they didn't want to reshoot everything they'd shot that one day. So we just kept waiting. So I was just sitting in my trailer what, you know, and they would wait, maybe the weather would change. And, uh, so I, that wound up being a super long, many days job when it was, it's, I think it was spo- originally supposed to be five days and I wound up with 18 days or something like that. So, uh, just get yourself to the set. The idiocy of this business will make you money. Uh, it rang through. So thanks to my pal, Charlie. God rest his soul.
1: <laughs> That's a great piece of advice. I like that a lot. Uh, now last thing. What is the best thing, Scott, about being a part of the Star Trek
0: universe? I'm proud to be a part of it because I'm a fan of it. I liked it. I watched it growing up as a kid. I was a Star Trek. I was a Star Trek Next Generation fan before I got on the show. I like the message. I like the fan base. I think that that all inclusive universe, ah, is the reason that people respond to it. Uh, everyone is welcome. And when they're not, the people who don't welcome them are usually the villains. And, uh, empathy rules in the galaxy in that Roddenberry universe. And, uh, I think that's good messaging. And I think that the obvious, unbelievable legs of the star Trek universe, even with all the new shows now, obviously Picard and all of the ones that they've got running now, uh, uh, same thing again, it's just this, uh, quest for, uh, equality in the universe. And I, I, I think, I think that's a good message and I'm proud to have been a part of it.
1: Well, that's a great answer, and uh, you know, I'm I'm very proud to have had you on this show as well because I mean, really, you talked about Corey Allen in your first episode, having all the folks gather around and saying, you know, well, if you want to be an actor, watch this man perform, and uh, it couldn't be in a truer. I, I really hope that if there's folks out there who want to be actors, uh, they should listen to this episode because you've given us a free masterclass in these two parts about what you do, the way you do it, uh, the method that you work. This is you, I'd pay for this. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it's been amazing, and also just all the amazing stories that you have um you know i, I just am just so happy and grateful that you're willing to share all this insight all this knowledge all your time with us uh and you know really you are living the greatest adventure in star trek as well because you've gotten to do so many cool roles so uh thank you so much scott for sticking around for double the length of a normal guest and uh, just being a real
0: awesome dude that's cool thank you very much it's fun and then live long and prosper everybody
1: that's it for this week's episode of Trek Untold. Until next time, don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Trek Untold, all one word. If you'd like to directly support this podcast, please consider becoming a Patreon supporter over on Patreon.com trekuntold which gives you access to some great perks that can't be beat. Or pick up some merchandise from our store, or use my Amazon shop link to check out all kinds of different Star Trek merchandise. Links for all these things are in the show notes. Shout out to Triple Fiction Productions for being a key sponsor of Trek Untold. Don't forget to check them out and all of the fine folks whose ads you've seen or heard on this podcast, too. Shout out to Full Empire Promotions for helping connect us with Scott for this interview. Visit FullEmpirePromotions.com to pick up signed items from Scott McDonald from Star Trek and his other movies and shows, as well as autographed items from all of Full Empire Promotions' clients. If you have any questions, feedback, or comments for the show or would like to suggest a guest or discuss sponsorship options for any of these episodes in the future, send me a message at trekuntold at gmail.com. I hope to see you here again as we uncover more untold stories from Star Trek and beyond and get to know even more amazing people who have contributed to this ever-expanding universe. Until next time, I'm Matthew Kavlowitz, and remember, fortune favors the bold.
2: Trek Untold is sponsored by treksphere.com promoting fan-produced Star Trek content in all forms, is powered by the Rageworks Podcasting Network, and is affiliated with Nerd News Today.